Chapter Nine of The Smuggler by George Payne Rainsford James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Nine. There is a strange similarity, I had nearly called it an affinity, between the climate of any country and the general character of its population, and there is a still stronger and more commonly remarked resemblance between the changes of the weather and the usual course of human life. From the atmosphere around us, and from the alterations which affect it, poets and moralists both have borrowed a large store of figures, and the words clouds and sunshine, light breezes and terrible storms, are terms as often used to express the variations in man's condition as to convey the ideas to which they were originally applied. But it is the affinity between the climate and the people of which I wish to speak. The sunny lightness of the air of France, the burning heat of Italy and Spain, the cold dullness of the skies of Holland, contrast as strongly with the climate in which we live as the characters of the several nations amongst themselves. And the fiercer tempests of the south, the more foggy and heavy atmosphere of the north, may well be taken as some compensation for the continual mutability of the weather in our own most changeable air. The differences are not so great here as in other lands. We escape, in general, the tornado and the hurricane. We know little of the burning heat of summer, or the intense cold of winter, as they are experienced in other parts of the world. But at all events, the changes are much more frequent, and we seldom have either a long lapse of sunny days, or a long continued season of frost, without interruption. So it is, too, with the people, movable and fluctuating as they always are, seeking novelty, disgusted even with all that is good, as soon as they discover that it is old. Our laws, our institutions, our very manners are continually undergoing some change, though rarely, very rarely indeed, it is brought about violently and without due preparation. Sometimes it will occur, indeed, both morally and physically, that a great and sudden alteration takes place, and a rash and vehement proceeding will disturb the whole country, and seems to shake the very foundations of society. In the atmosphere, too, clouds and storms will gather in a few hours, and darken the whole heaven. The latter was the case during the first night of Sir Edward Digby's stay at Harborne House. The evening proceeding, as well as the day, had been warm and sunshiny, but about nine o'clock the wind suddenly chopped round to the southward, and when Sir Edward woke on the following morning, as he usually did about six, he found a strong breeze blowing and rattling the casements of the room, and the whole atmosphere loaded with a heavy sea-mist filled with saline particles, borne over Romney Marsh to the higher country in which the house was placed. A pleasant day for partridge shooting, he thought, as he rose from his bed. What variations there are in this climate! But nevertheless, he opened the window and looked out, when, somewhat to his surprise, he saw fifteen or sixteen horses moving along the road, heavily laden, with a number of men on horseback following, and eight or ten on foot driving the weary beasts along. They were going leisurely enough, there was no affectation of haste or concealment, but yet all that the young officer had heard of the country and of the habits of its denizens led him naturally to suppose that he had a gang of smugglers before him, escorting from the coast some contraband goods lately landed. He had soon a more unpleasant proof of the lawless state of that part of England, for as he continued to lean out of the window, saying to himself, 
Well, it is no business of mine. He saw two or three of the men pause, and a moment after a voice shouted, Take that, old Croyland, for sending me to jail last April. The wind bore the sounds to his ear, and made the words distinct, and scarcely had they been spoken when a flash broke through the misty air, followed by a loud report, and a ball whizzed through the window just above his head, breaking one of the panes of glass and lodging in the cornice at the other side of the room. "'Very pleasant,' said Sir Edward Digby to himself. But he was a somewhat rash young man, and he did not move an inch, thinking, "'The vagabond shall not have to say they frightened me.' They showed no inclination to repeat the shot, however, riding on at a somewhat accelerated pace, and as soon as they were out of sight, Digby withdrew from the window and began to dress himself. He had not given his servant the night before any orders to call him at a particular hour, but he knew that the man would not be later than half-past six, and before he appeared the young officer was nearly dressed. "'Here, Summers,' said his master, "'put my gun together and have everything ready if I should like to go out to shoot. After that I have a commission for you, something quite in your way, which I know you will execute capitally.' "'Quite ready, sir,' said the man, putting up his hand to his head, "'always ready to obey orders.' "'We want intelligence of the enemy, Summers,' continued his master. "'Get me every information you could obtain regarding young Mr. Radford, "'where he goes, what he does, and all about him.' "'Pass, present, or to come, sir,' demanded the man. "'All three, answered his master. "'Everything you can learn about him, in short. "'Birth, parentage, and education.' "'I shall soon have to add his last dying speech and confession, I think, sir,' said the man. "'But you shall have it all before night, from the loose gossip of the post-office "'down to the full, true, and particular account of his father's own butler. "'But bless my soul, there's a hole through the window, sir.' "'Nothing but a musket-ball, Summers,' answered his master carelessly. "'You've seen such a thing before, I fancy.' "'Yes, sir, but not often in a gentleman's bedroom,' replied the man. "'Who could send it in here, I wonder?' "'Some smugglers, I suppose they were,' replied Sir Edward, "'who took me for Sir Robert Croyland as I was leaning out of the window "'and gave me a ball as they passed. "'I never saw a worse shot in my life, "'for I was put up like a target, and it went a foot and a half above my head. "'Give me those boots, Summers.' "'And having drawn them on, Sir Edward Digby descended to the drawing-room, "'while his servant commented upon his coolness by saying, "'Well, he's a devilish fine young fellow, that master of mine, "'and ought to make a capital general some of these days.' "'In the drawing-room, Sir Edward Digby found nobody but a pretty country girl "'in a mob-cap, sweeping out the dust, "'and leaving her to perform her functions undisturbed by his presence, "'he sauntered through a door which he had seen open the night before, "'exposing part of the interior of a library. "'That room was quite vacant, "'and as the young officer concluded that between it and the drawing-room must lie the scene of his morning's operations, he entertained himself with taking down different books, looking into them for a moment or two, reading a page here and a page there, and then putting them up again. He was in no mood to say the truth, either for serious study or light reading. Gay would not have amused him. Locke would have driven him mad. He knew not well why it was, but his heart beat when he heard a step in the neighbouring room, it was nothing but the housemaid, as he was soon convinced, by her letting the dustpan drop and making a terrible clatter. He asked himself what his heart could be about, to go on in such a way, simply because he was waiting, 
in the not very vague expectation of seeing a young lady with whom he had to talk of some business in which neither of them were personally concerned it must be the uncertainty of whether she will come or not he thought or else the secrecy of the thing and yet he had often before had to wait with still more secrecy and still more uncertainty on very dangerous and important occasions without feeling any such agitation of his usually calm nerves she was a very pretty girl it was true with all the fresh graces of youth about her light and sunshine in her eyes health and happiness on her cheeks and lips and la grâce encore plus belle que la beauté in every movement but then they perfectly understood each other there was no harm there was no risk there was no reason why they should not meet did they perfectly understand each other did they perfectly understand themselves it is a very difficult question to answer but one thing is certain that of all things upon this earth the most gullible is the human heart and when it thinks it understands itself best it is almost always sure to prove a greater fool than ever sir edward digby did not altogether like his own thoughts and therefore after waiting for a quarter of an hour he walked out into one of the little passages which we have already mentioned running from the central corridor towards a door or window in the front between the library and what was called the music-room he had not been there a minute when a step very different from that of the housemaid was heard in the neighbouring room and as the officer was turning thither he met the younger miss croyland coming out with a bonnet or hat as it was then called hanging on her arm by the ribbons she held out her hand frankly towards him saying in a low tone you must think this is all very strange sir edward and perhaps very improper i have been taxing myself about it all night but yet i was resolved i would not lose the opportunity trusting to your generosity to justify me when you hear all it requires no generosity my dear miss croyland replied the young baronet i am already aware of so much and see the kind and deep interest you take in your sister so clearly that i fully understand and appreciate your motives thank you thank you replied zara warmly that sets my mind at rest but come out upon the terrace there seen by all the world i shall not feel as if i were plotting and she unlocked the glass door at the end of the passage sir edward digby followed close upon her step and when once fairly on the esplanade before the house and far enough from open doors and windows not to be overheard they commenced their walk backwards and forwards it was quite natural that both should be silent for a few moments for where there is much to say and little time to say it in people are apt to waste the precious present or at least a part in considering how it may best be said at length the lady raised her eyes to her companion's face with a smile more melancholy and embarrassed than usually found place upon her sweet lips asking how shall i begin sir edward have you nothing to tell me i have merely to ask questions replied digby yet perhaps that may be the best commencement i am aware my dear miss croyland that your sister has loved and has been deeply beloved as woman ever was by man i know the whole tale but what i seek now to learn is this does she or does she not retain the affection of her early youth do former days and former feelings dwell in her heart as still existing things or are they but as sad memories of a passion passed away darkening instead of lightening the present 
or perhaps as a tie which she would fain shake off, and which keeps her from a brighter fate hereafter. He spoke solemnly, earnestly, with his whole manner changed, and Zara gazed in his face eagerly and inquiringly as he went on, her face glowing, but her look becoming less sad, till it beamed with a warm and relieved smile at the close. "'I was right, and she was wrong,' she said at length, as if speaking to herself. "'But to answer your question, Sir Edward Digby,' she continued gravely, "'you little know woman's heart, or you would not put it. "'I mean the heart of a true and unspoiled woman, "'a woman worthy of the name. "'When she loves, she loves for ever, "'and it is only when death or unworthiness take from her him she loves "'that love becomes a memory. "'You cannot yet judge of Edith, "'and therefore I forgive you for asking such a thing.' but she is all that is noble and good and bright, and heaven pardon me if I almost doubt that she was meant for happiness below. She seemed so fitted for a higher state. The tears rose in her eyes as she spoke, but Sir Edward feared interruption and went on, asking, somewhat abruptly perhaps, what made you say just now that you were right and she was wrong? Because she thought that he was dead and that you came to announce it to her, Zara replied, you spoke of him in the past. You always said he was. You said not a word of the present. Because I knew not what were her present feelings, answered Digby. She has never written. She has never answered one letter. All his have been returned in cold silence to his agents, addressed in her own hand. And then her father wrote to... Stay, stay, cried Zara, putting her hand to her head. Addressed in her own hand... It must have been a forgery. Yet no, perhaps not. She wrote to him twice, once just after he went, and once in answer to a message. The last letter I gave to the gardener myself and bade him post it. That, too, was addressed to his agent's house. Can they have stopped the letters and used the covers? It is probable, answered Digby thoughtfully. Did she receive none from him? None, none, replied Zara decidedly. All that she has ever heard of him was conveyed in that one message. But she doubted not Sir Edward. She knew him, it seems, better than he knew her. Neither did he doubt her, rejoined her companion, till circumstance after circumstance occurred to shake his confidence. Her own father wrote to him, now three years ago, to say that she was engaged by her own consent to this young Radford, and to beg that he would trouble her peace no more by fruitless letters. "'Oh, heaven!' cried Zara. "'Did my father say that?' "'He did,' replied Sir Edward. "'And more. "'Everything that poor Leighton has heard since his return "'has confirmed the tale. "'He inquired too curiously for his own peace, first whether she was yet married, "'next whether she was really engaged, "'and every one gave but one account. "'How busy they have been,' said Zara thoughtfully. "'Whoever said it, it is false, Sir Edward.' and he should not have doubted her more than she doubted him. She, you admit, had one message, answered Digby. He had none, and yet he held a lingering hope. Trust would not altogether be crushed out. Can you tell me the tenor of the letters which she sent? Nay, I did not read them, replied his fair companion, but she told me that it was the same story still, that she could not violate her duty to her parent, but that she could ever consider herself pledged and plighted to him beyond recall by what had passed between them. "'Then there is light at last,' said Digby, with a smile. 
But what is this story of young Radford? Is he, or is he not, her lover? He seemed to pay her little attention, more indeed to yourself. The gay girl laughed. I will tell you all about it, she answered. Richard Radford is not her lover. He cares as little about her as about the Queen of England, or anybody he has never seen. And as you say, he would perhaps pay me the compliment of selecting me, rather than Edith, if there was not a very cogent objection. Edith has forty thousand pounds settled upon herself by my mother's brother, who was her godfather. I have nothing, or next to nothing, some three or four thousand pounds, I believe, but I really don't know. However, this fortune of my poor sister's is old Radford's object, and he and my father have settled it between them that the son of the one should marry the daughter of the other. What possesses my father I cannot divine, for he must condemn old Radford and despise the young one. But certain it is that he has pressed Edith, nearly to cruelty, to give her hand to a man she scorns and hates, and presses her still. It would be worse than it is, I fear, were it not for young Radford himself, who is not half so eager as his father, and does not wish to hurry matters on. I may have some small share in the business, she continued, laughing again, but colouring at the same time, for, to tell the truth, Sir Edward, having nothing else to do, and wishing to relieve poor Edith as much as possible, I have perhaps foolishly, perhaps even wrongly, drawn this wretched young man away from her whenever I had an opportunity. I do not think it was coquetry, as my uncle calls it. Nay, I am sure it was not, for I abhor him as much as any one. But I thought that as there was no chance of my ever being driven to marry him, I could bear the infliction of his conversation better than my poor sister. The motive was a kind one at all events, replied Sir Edward Digby, but then I may firmly believe that there is no chance whatever of Miss Croyland giving her hand to Richard Radford. None, none whatever, answered his fair companion. But at that point of their conversation one of the windows above was thrown up, and the voice of Mrs. Barbara was heard exclaiming, "'Zara, my love, put on your hat. You will catch cold if you walk in that way, with your hat on your arm, in such a cold, misty morning.' Miss Croyland looked up, nodding to her aunt and doing as she was told, like a very good girl as she was. But the next instant she said in a low tone, "'Good heaven, there is his face at the window. My unlucky aunt has roused him by calling to me, and we shall not be long without him.' "'Who do you mean?' asked the young officer, turning his eyes towards the house and seeing no one. "'Young Radford,' answered Zara, "'did you not know that they had to carry him to bed last night, unable to stand?' So my maid told me, and I saw his face just now at the window next to my aunt's. We shall have little time, Sir Edward, for he is as intrusive as he is disagreeable. So tell me at once what I am to think regarding poor Harry Leighton. Does he still love Edith? Is he in a situation to enable him to seek her without affording great, and what they would consider reasonable, causes of objection? He loves her as deeply and devotedly as ever, replied Sir Edward Digby, and all I have to tell him will but, if possible, increase that love. Then, as to his situation, he is now a superior officer in the army, highly distinguished, commanding one of our best regiments, but sharing largely in the great distribution of prize money. There is no position that can be filled by a military man to which he has not a right to aspire, and, moreover, he has already received from the gratitude of his king and his country the high honour. But he was not allowed to finish his sentence, 
for Mrs. Barbara Croyland, who was most unfortunately matutinal in her habits, now came out with a shawl for her fair niece, and was uncomfortably civil to Sir Edward Digby, inquiring how he had slept, whether he had been warm enough, whether he liked two pillows or one, and a great many other questions which lasted till young Radford made his appearance at the door, and then, with a pale face and sullen brow, came out and joined the party on the terrace. "'Well,' said Mrs. Barbara, now that she had done as much mischief as possible, "'I'll just go in and make breakfast, as Edith must set out early, "'and Mr. Radford wants to get home to shoot.' "'Edith set off early?' exclaimed Zara. "'Why, where is she going, my dear aunt?' "'Oh, I have just been settling it all with your papa, my love,' replied Mrs. Barbara. "'I thought she was looking ill yesterday, so I talked to your uncle last night.' He said he would be very glad to have her with him for a few days, but as he expects a Captain Osborne before the end of the week, she must come at once, and Sir Robert says she can have the carriage after breakfast, and that it must be back by one. Zara cast down her eyes, and the whole party, as if by common consent, took their way back to the house. As they passed in, however, and proceeded towards the dining-room, where the table was laid for breakfast, Zara found a moment to say to Sir Edward Digby in a low tone, "'Was there ever anything so unfortunate? I will try to stop it if I can.' "'Not so unfortunate as it seems,' answered the young baronet in a whisper. "'Let it take its course. I will explain hereafter.' "'Whispering, whispering,' said young Radford in a rude tone, and with a sneer curling his lip. Zara's cheek grew crimson, but Digby turned upon him sharply, demanding— "'What is that to you, sir? Pray make no observations upon my conduct, for depend upon it, I shall not tolerate any insolence.' At that moment, however, Sir Robert Croyland appeared, and whatever might have been Richard Radford's intended reply, it was suspended upon his lips. End of chapter 9